I just wondered, do our stories matter? Is anyone listening? And should we continue sharing stories? But I'm wondering if you can actually define what narrative is. So I'm just wondering when you're saying people's heads are up their asses, like what, how does that apply to narrative? Welcome to Wonderland, where we explore the connections between pop culture, human nature, and social change. I'm Bridget Antoinette Evans. And I'm Tracy Van Slyke. A quick warning. This episode includes some adult language. If you're at work or listening with young ones, now might be a good time to reach for those headphones. Now let's get started. Last time on Wonderland, we looked at why humans need stories, why we tell them, and how we are moved by them. There is actually a hunger for stories that narrate more than just individual lives and journeys, but how systems need to change. Today, we're going to dig into one key question. How can we rewrite and replace harmful narratives to change the way people think and feel about the world? To do this, we need a rock-solid strategy. For Tracy and me, strategy is the vision of what you want and the plan that you implement to get there. And a lot goes into the process of making this plan. But where you start is by taking a step back and looking at the current narrative environment. What are the ideas and beliefs and values and behaviors that are swirling around a particular audience? And what you often find is that at the heart of this narrative environment is one simple story or idea. So to see how a story becomes a complex narrative strategy and how this works in the real world, we welcomed two brilliant leaders. One is leading the next generation of the immigrant rights movement. My name is Cristina Jimenez, and I'm a community organizer and strategist. Cristina Jimenez is the executive director of United We Dream, a movement that organizes for dignity for all immigrants in the United States. We are constantly blown away by her innovative approach to organizing, her courage in sharing her own story, and her dedication to her work. It goes without saying that it's a hard time for immigrants in America. So Christina's movement needs to be nimble, reactive, and also strategic and visionary. We also invited someone who understands the uphill battle that United We Dream faces. My name is Ryan Sensor, and I am an independent organizational change and narrative consultant. Ryan works behind the scenes of social movements to help them design their narrative strategies. He's worked on strategy for organizations like Color of Change and the New York Civil Liberties Union. In his former life, he worked in advertising. We started by talking about how they have personally experienced the power of a simple story. One way in which my um, my way of thinking about story in the context of organizing that was uh, dramatic for me in terms of how I was looking at storytelling and organizing was just having a conversation with um, with my dad about um, what, how he was feeling about the conversation on uh, immigration back at the time. I mean, I'm probably talking about four or five years. This was right before um, we were able to get this huge victory of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that protects young people from deportation. And my dad, 
for the first time share his story of being a community organizer in Ecuador. And he never shared with me for fear that um, I will follow his steps. (laughs) But I ended up following his steps no matter what, um, because in Ecuador, organizing puts people's lives at risk. And he had lost many of his friends. I asked him how he felt and how he felt about the fact that young people had organized for this, but also that we had the majority of the community still not protected. And what he said to me is movement building is going to break your heart. Organizing is going to break your heart. And there's going to be victories that are going to be both bitter and sweet. It it is this kind of a moment that is going to push you and the rest of the young people that you work with to take even um, more risky and courageous decisions and don't think about the older set of the community or like the parents uh, and the those folks that aren't young in the immigrant community as folks that don't want to be engaged and don't want to put the skin in the game. And so for me, that was one community organizing lesson that shifted my thinking about the moment, uh, inspired me to keep doing the work. And imagine if we were to actually have these conversations with more of our parents and the rest of the community, what we could learn and what we could lift up and how that could strengthen our organizing. Why do you think you never had that conversation and that others don't either? So this is really an interesting moment. Ryan starts to ask Christina deeper questions about her story, and this shows us how he actually begins to start thinking about narrative strategy. Why do you think you never had that conversation and that others don't either? It's that it was grounded in both fear but also a sense of protection for our family members. You know, for me, I remember the first time that I thought about sharing my story. I was 19. I had this event that I had to go to. I had to share my story for the first time. And I was like, oh, crap. If I share my name, if I share where I'm from, I'm going to get in trouble. That could give information to immigration. My parents could be deported. I also decided to change my name and the country of origin that I was going to share in my story. So I show up in this event and I share, oh, my name is Sandra and I'm from Costa Rica. Um Right. My name is Nassandra and I was born in Ecuador, but um, I did that with <laughs> with uh, the intention um, of protecting my family, my parents from deportation. Maybe everyone should have a fake name. <laughs> Isn't that what, the, what Batman says at some point? Mm-hmm. You wear the mask to protect others. Yeah. Not yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is a really good way to for me to think about the evolution of the storytelling in the work that we've been doing. And part of what I have been struggling with is, one, the guilt for not asking these questions before, not having these conversations before with, you know, people like my own parents. But second, because in the the midst of making a lot of progress in narrative change and storytelling about immigrants and immigration, I think that immigrant youth and dreamers have been very successful in completely shifting the way in which people talk about young people and particularly young immigrants, which ultimately has also resulted in concrete policy changes. There is not a similar feeling about people like my parents. 
And um, I've struggled with, well, if when I share my story, I have shared the story of my parents and why they came and the courageous decision that they made for me and for my brother to give us a better life. Like maybe that would have changed the way um, in which one, we all share stories, but also the perception that people have about, you know, immigrants like my parents. Um, And here we are today where I feel young people are, young immigrants in particular are seen and perceived as a very favorable sort of character in the story and very sympathetic but my parents aren't. So, you know, given your work around <laughs> storytelling and narrative, it will be really helpful to hear from your perspective as we think about these questions. How do we turn people like my parents into sympathetic characters in the story or characters that people will accept and grow to love and to welcome? Do you feel like your parents have had their moment to tell their story? Well, my parents over the years have gotten more involved, but it hasn't become a viral, you know, a viral thing in immigrant communities. I think you really get at it when you talk about the need for something to be viral. It's the same thing of people telling their story of sexual assault or anything else in their lives that's been a struggle. There's every reason to tell it. Without telling it, it doesn't become part of the American songbook. So it feels like that's a big part of what the narrative work is, is getting your lyrics, your melodies and rhythms into that American songbook so that as other people are flipping through it, they know how to sing that story. And they know how to hear it, too. They recognize it and they know where it's going. But then there are the people who are kind of flipping through that songbook and tearing the pages out all the time. So we have to be committed to replenishing that songbook, no matter what the risks of doing so are. But how does that take off and how does it become, how does the risk of telling the story become lesser than the risk of not telling it? In the LGBTQ context, in the massive amount of culture change, political change, social change, and narrative change, that's many other changes that are part of those successes, it all started with that coming out moment. I got to a place where I was feeling, I am not sure that people are listening to our stories. I am not sure that storytelling matters. I mean, you have this big storyteller, very effective storyteller, Trump, <laughs> convincing all these people that immigrants steal jobs, that we need to build a wall, that we need to deport all of them, that all Muslims are terrorists. Um, that all Latinos are bad hombres or hombres, as he said it. Um, he was really good. And on our side, you know, I just wondered, do our stories matter? Is anyone listening? And should we continue sharing stories? And though I don't feel in that hopeless place <laughs> in many ways right now. I think I still have questions about how effective storytelling can be and are people listening? What's the balance between the stories we're telling to help one another and the stories we're telling to help other people understand what's happening mm -hmm. in the room we're in? 
And might there be an imbalance, perhaps a miscalculation in the strategy of being imbalanced toward telling the kind of stories that help one another and not enough the stories that break out and help other people understand who we are. I think Trump is a powerful storyteller. He's actually a masterful brand manager is more how (laughs) I think of it. But he wouldn't be effective unless he was actually telling a story that people were already quite familiar with. A narrative is a story people already know. But it's also a tool that we can use to reshape how people think, feel, and respond to the world around them. When you talked, Christina, earlier about the importance of invoking the character of criminal and tying that in any way to the way we talk about immigration, there's a reason that once you've stuck that word, it's it's not going to come unstuck. There's sometimes the word criminal won't stick, like in the gun space, for instance, where people are trying to throw that word out at people who aren't using guns in the right way, and it's somehow not sticking. But once there's a stickiness there, and applying the word criminal to anything having to do with race is a very strong uh, adhesion. And so we have to use narrative as a tool to both stick, create stickiness for the ideas that we have that we think are necessary in order for our solutions to make sense to people in the world. But we also have to use narrative to be to unstick and scrape off all these different labels that have been put on our issues and the people we care about and the people we are and the people we fight for and clean those things off to make way for a whole bunch of new sticky ideas to take hold. But, but Ryan, Christina's storytelling strategy for United We Dream has actually been really clear and consistent, right? Yeah, it's powerful to me because it is actually the same story of belonging and the power of working together to make this world a different and better place. And as long as we are telling that one uncompromising story and never giving up on it, then I think we have hope. But when we give up the very power that we have, we shouldn't be surprised we're powerless. And that is the course we've taken on so many issues for so long, is trying to tell some other story we think works rather than the story we know to be true. You know, I mean, when I started organizing, I was 19, and I literally had this, like, version of a toolkit or a packet, right? Like, these are our talking points. This is what we're all saying. So when you talk to the media, when you talk to members of Congress, this is what you say. And to me, it just seems so bizarre as a 19-year-old that we will be saying things like, immigrants need to get right with the law. That's why we need smart enforcement. Uh, And if you give us smart enforcement, you can do background checks on us. You can make us pay taxes. You can punish us by making us pay fees. And then we will be able to apply for citizenship. And so all of those steps meant to speak to like the, this is how you will earn and we will forgive you for being undocumented uh, or staying in the country without papers. The My own organizing story really took off when I said, okay, that 
doesn't resonate with me. <laughs> I don't think it resonates with most immigrants that I work with. And we need to create a different thing. And that's actually why United We Dream, or one of the reasons why United We Dream came about. And I laugh about it now, but in moments like right now, in the in the environment that we're in, I can see the damaging impact that 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 those set of talking points had, both in discourse, in policy. I mean, we're still trying to get out of the frame that you need to punish people first before you give them a path to citizenship. People are so busy thinking about stories that move others that they forget the stories that motivated themselves. And that is the seed. That is the crux of authenticity that you have to always have. It's hard to convince others of something if you don't believe it yourself, unless you're just a perfect salesperson. And in this case with saying our broken immigration system, for instance, well, is that what we think it's broken? Or do we think it's racist? Do we think it's unjust? Do we think it's destroying our country and destroying our lives? Broken doesn't seem to really take us there. And so if we're not saying what we believe, who else will? The more honest you get, the more vulnerable you get, the more open you get, the more truth you're telling, the more powerful you are. So Ryan, I want to highlight what you're saying about the story we have to tell. That for it to be powerful, movements need to believe the story they're telling, and they need to tell that story again and again and again. So what is the strategic process you go through when you're trying to transform a movement story into a cultural norm? I think narrative change begins, like any kind of change begins, with the first step of people pulling their head out of their ass. If you don't get to that, you can't really go much farther. The institutions who represent the people going through the struggles that define the main issues of our day are still in a fantasy world in which their ideas and stories and strategies make sense, even though it's been proven so many times that they don't. I remember when I was younger in high school, there was something called Operation Rescue, which was the mainly Christian rights response to a liberalizing approach to reproductive freedom. What do you think about abortion? Do you think abortion is okay? Well, I understand, but mommy has the right to kill you if she wants. But they certainly didn't win. And there was a sense that the revulsion they caused was not a revulsion against reproductive rights and women's health and abortion, but a revulsion against their own way of being in the world that people didn't take a liking to. And they realized that and they shifted their whole tack to understand that instead of going to the core issue of what abortion is, they could work on these issues like so-called partial birth abortion. They could go out to the edges where the most amount of people were uncomfortable and then burrow their way into the core of the freedom and eventually eradicate it. That shift in strategy proved extremely effective because it was spoiled. It was a spoiled strategy and they understood it and it smelled and it stank and they got rid of it and they cooked up something else. 
And I think we have to develop readily a sense of smell that would be not just uh, a, an intolerance we build up, but actually that kind of gas leak early warning system that we know immediately to get out and scrap what, we're, what we've been cooking up. We need to have a much finer sense of that. So I'm just wondering when you're saying people's heads are up their asses or they're not smelling, sniffing things quickly enough, which maybe could go together, that, you know, like, that, uh, like what, how does that apply to narrative? Yeah, so narrative shift and the work of narrative shift requires a lot more intentionality and also a lot more randomness than people seem to tolerate. But they want the randomness but not in the areas where randomness can happen that's productive and strategic. But then people will apply randomness to the virality, I think you were talking about before, Christina, of say what kinds of things take off online. So we'll just produce this content, and sure, we'll just let the world decide. We'll just let it be random to see if it takes off. That's where randomness is allowed to exist. Well, we got an article in the New York Times, so let's just hope that someone who could possibly be influenced by that article happens to see it and that the person who happens to see it can be influenced by it is also the person who controls immigration policy in one fell swoop in this country. That randomness, which I call wishful thinking, is extremely prevalent. Yet the intentionality, the deliberateness, the hard hours of work, those are the things that people want to avoid. They want to be controlling about these talking point messages, but they don't want to put the same effort into the creativity and into the discipline and into the execution that is is completely required and which unfortunately the corporate world, the world of the right wing, has an exceptional appreciation for and a very low tolerance for anything less than excellence in. How do you then understand and see the story th- that is uh, is right for this particular moment to meet this particular audience to to do this particular thing to them and to the broader culture? How do you how do you see that story out of all of the authentic, true beliefs and stories that that have been kind of unearthed? So there's several answers to the question of how do you choose among the many authentic stories there are. And the easiest answer to that question is simply one of trying it out to see what works. But there are two things that are important in that. One is you have to create the conditions in which it's possible to work. And so that can't be in a lab and it can't be in a pollster-style focus group and it can't necessarily be in an email And you can't just say, we've hit the magic message. Let's put in a press release and imagine those words will jump off the page and go change the world on their own. So I think the power of experimentation is very important. But it has to be more than just sending out an email and seeing which subject line message works. It has to be an experiment in which you can truly immerse people in a world of a set of ideas and see ultimately if it changes not just their opinion but their actual behavior. We just usually call that learning. And so how do we create environments where people are not passive consumers of a message, but active learners engaged in a story? And if we can get people to be learning, 
then they will apply. They will look for opportunities to apply what they've learned in the world around them. And there's a reason that Fox News is first and foremost an educational vehicle. Who is the professor of immigration in this country for the people who live in this country and reckon with the issue of immigration? Bill O'Reilly is one of those professors. This is temporary. We're the no-spin zone here, and it is permanent. I mean, Jose, you're in a, you're in a country to stay now, all right, for better or for worse. Some pastor in some megachurch is one of those professors. Donald Trump became an exceptionally popular visiting lecturer. Yes. <laughs> but when we think about it on our side, what are the kinds of learning experiences we're creating? How creative, how fun are they? Um, you know, I'm, I'm taking that away because I often, I'm often in spaces where I'm being challenged, constantly challenged about, no, 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 this is not what people want to hear. And, you know, don't use the word race when you talk about immigration. You know, you can't you can't defend all criminals when you talk about immigration. And and so hearing and being part of the conversation makes me even feel more stubborn about when I think about strategy and stories and particularly what stories I can be sharing and the people that I work with, that we need to let go of the quote unquote training we've had and really dive into the creativity. to reflect for a second on their conversation. Um, what are you taking away from Christina and Ryan? So to begin with, I was incredibly inspired to hear Christina imagine what's possible during an incredibly scary time for immigrants. That was really important. What about you, Bridget? What stuck with you? I mean, I love the idea of the songbook. Oh my God, I love the songbook. And there's something really powerful about the idea of of you are telling your story, you're vocalizing it, but other people can see themselves and be connected to that at the same time. Well, the thing that I think is so interesting is that he doesn't say it's important to become a part of the book of songs, right? The, The iconic association we have with... American songbook is literally a songbook that is a curated overview of American musical history and the musicians and voices that have been chosen to be a part of this songbook are incredibly subjective, but they matter. This is how we have articulated the history of our country. And and what I think Ryan is Um, suggesting is that through narrative strategy, through the design of narrative systems, we have the opportunity to rewrite this history with a whole new set of voices. Um, And that's really powerful and actually gets another idea within narrative strategy, um, which is how we grapple with the iconic stories of a particular culture. Well, this even goes back to what what we were talking about with Heidi and Socket in terms of uh, who's owning the technology or who's telling the stories through technology. Completely. Um, that who's owning the songs that define who we are as a society and as a country. Or who's publishing the book. Yeah, 
who's in charge, who's the who's got the power, who's got the decision making power. So as as much as it tells uh, America's history, like you said, we're rewriting that history, and we're actually um, casting our mind to what the songs of our future are. In the next episode, we're going to follow Ryan's advice and learn how to listen deeply to our audiences. We have to listen to them if we're going to understand what will make them change. We will have a genius from the labor and immigrant rights movement. Like, she's a literal genius. She won the MacArthur Genius Award. Ai Jen Poo. A lot of the women who do the work are immigrant women, primary income earners who are both working in the workforce and caring for families of their own. And yet their stories are so, so under the radar of our culture and our cultural imagination. Aijin will be joined by futurist Skylar Brown. Together they will help us learn how to listen to audiences so that we can tell the stories that people actually want to hear. Helping movements, individuals, organizations figure out what they want the future to be and how to get there and inspire them to see it and have that vision. Next time on Wonderland. Wonderland is made possible with support from the Nathan Cummings Foundation, Unbound Philanthropy, and the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitali produced the series. Destry Sibley is our editorial producer. Duff Harris is our sound engineer. Rigoberto Lara is our research assistant. This episode was recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City. Special thanks to Kevin Plesner. Visit our website, thisiswonderland.us, for resources to develop your own culture change strategy. There are photos and videos of our conversation with Christina and Ryan and links to the films and TV shows mentioned in this episode. 